0: What's up, everyone? Yes, it is I, your host, Natalie Morrison, and you might be thinking, wasn't this called Swim Masters? Well, yes, it was, and you're definitely in the right place. We decided that we wanted to give the podcast a bit of a makeover, and we're so proud to introduce to you Revoicing the Future, a Women of Nam podcast. Don't worry. It's still the same content, still the same hosts. We just wanted to take this to the next level. And we're excited that you're joining us on this fantastic journey. The episode that you're currently listening to was recorded before the name change. And I just wanted to let you know that you are in the right spot. So keep on listening. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for all new episodes of Revoicing the Future, a Woman of Nam podcast coming soon. Welcome to Swim Masters, a podcast dedicated to help connect, grow, and support women in the music products industry. I am your host, Natalie Morrison. The Smart Women in Music Fund was established in 2018 by Robin Walenta, Dee Dee Hyde, and Crystal Morris to expand diversity, inclusion, and support for women in the music product space. Twice a month, I will sit down and host virtual conversations with various women across our industry to help foster mentorship and growth. Now, without further ado... Let's dive in. Welcome back to Swim Masters. It's your host, Natalie Morrison here. Hope everyone is doing well, staying healthy. Before we get started, I wanted to ask you a favor. I know, crazy, right? But super easy. If you know anyone who would love this podcast, who would benefit from these episodes, please share it with them, friends, family, colleagues, I would really appreciate it. Also, if you could give us a rating and a review, we would really love the feedback. And if you could follow us on social media, that would be awesome. We have Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, you know the drill, easy peasy. So, that's I guess a couple favors, but they're easy ones. With that being said, I'm super excited for today's episode. It's beautiful, it's inspiring. And I hope you learned something and enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. I'm thrilled to introduce to you Moya Nkrumah, who works at Fender in artist marketing, representing Black music and culture for r and hip-hop, reggae, and gospel music. She also worked for ASCAP for a number of years and recently just served on the advisory board for the Recording Academy. Let's not take any more time away. I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hi, Moya. Thank you so much for joining us on Swim Masters. Hi, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So basically, I want to talk about your career journey as a whole and really go piece by piece through it. I read the article that you did for Elite Daily. I mentioned that to you when we first started talking. And I want to learn about your journey in college because you went to school for opera. Then you changed your career to work on the business side of the industry, which also sort of mirrored your mother. So I would
1: love to learn more about that. Sure. For college, I went to Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle, Washington, I'm originally from Los Angeles, born and raised, but I ended up going to college there. The route from LA to Seattle is a, is an interesting one, and, and it, it kind of mirrors how I have kind of moved around in this industry and have made like different creative decisions. When I was in high school, I did home study from middle school to my first two years of high school. And that was because my mother, she is an artist. She also is a writer. So I grew up in this very artistic household where we would have, you know, different artists, visual artists, painters, filmmakers, dancers, always coming in and out of our house, musicians, especially. And so this is something that was normal to me. And both my parents are creative individuals. My dad In college, I believe he studied radio broadcasting, and now he is a freelance film editor, but who's also a licensed herbalist and um, like natural path like medicine, as well as acupuncture. (laughs) (laughs) So, So yeah, so they instilled in me just this like freedom to have like creative expression and the philosophy in our household was that mediocrity was just not allowed. <laughs> so, like for example, whenever I would like, when this is when I was much younger, but I would draw something on a on a piece of paper, and I'd show my mom, and you know, I'm I'm proud of my drawing, and she's like, "Oh, this is this is nice, but you didn't fill the space. Oh, you know, there's no. all this white space. So it's like, yeah, don't don't always accept." you know just like the first pass through like make it great yeah. you know so that was kind of like what was instilled in me so my journey from doing homeschool all my friends you know they were in school and that I grew up with they they started making other friendships and uh, there is a lonely element <laughs> to being homeschooled but to circle back to that I wanted to travel with my mom because like I said, she was an artist and my goal was I wanted to graduate early from high school and move to New York and go to college. I guess Juilliard was the dream and Mm. do (laughs) that. That's that's, that was like the plan (laughs) since I was a kid. So I was like, okay, homeschool. It is. My mom was on board. We can travel. I can, I can travel with her on her different projects. But like I said, It is a lonely endeavor being homeschooled. And I did miss that social interaction with all of my other friends. And I didn't want to miss out on those like rites of passage moments of like going to the prom and like graduation, like all of that. So my mom and I went to go see the movie, this is in the theaters, 10 Things I Hate About You. And, (laughs) And we always stay like as tradition, we always stay and watch like the ending credits And I saw that it said, in the ending credits, special thanks to Tacoma Public High Schools. And at the time, my aunt lived in Tacoma, Washington. And if you've seen this movie, the school where the movie is set looks like a castle. And in my mind, I'm like, wow, okay, if I want to go to like regular high school, I want to go to that one. That one looks pretty cool. And it just so happened that my aunt literally lived like a few blocks away from that high school. And I asked my mom, I said, hey, can I can I move in with my aunt? I want to go to this high school. It looks pretty cool. And she said, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so at 15, I packed my bags and I moved in with my aunt and I enrolled at it's called Stadium High School. And it was there that like I for me, I I found that I just blossomed as a, as a creative person. I really got involved in drama. I was always involved in choirs and music throughout my entire life. And just combining those things really gave me like a core group of friendships that I'm still in touch with today. But also really, I, that's where I fell in love, fell in love with the Pacific Northwest and discovered the School of Cornish and really started honing my craft as a singer and as, a, as an actor. And I auditioned and I got in to Cornish College of the Arts for opera vocal performance. That's a long answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> No,
0: but I, I like that. The the journey <laughs> is so interesting. And yeah. I am similar to you. And I grew up both my parents work in the arts. My mom's a teacher for third grade recorders, and then fourth and fifth grade band. And then my dad has also like worked in the music business, the business side of the music industry. Yeah, it's a very musical household. And it always has been So my parents joke around when I would be practicing. So I played the viola growing up. And my brother plays the saxophone and he's studying saxophone in oh, college yeah. right now. And it, they thought that they were living in a conservatory because they would hear one person practicing one instrument and the other person practicing the other instrument. Yeah. And <laughs> So you got to college. Did you know when you graduated that you wanted to give performance a shot or did you think about what you wanted to do before you graduated and decided that you wanted to try to go down the business route?
1: So I, I'm gonna be very, very honest here. So while I was in college, like my entire life, like since I was two years old, I knew I wanted to be a musician. I just knew, like, like my first instrument. You said you you studied the viola. Um, I studied the violin. That was my first instrument when (laughs) I was nine. (laughs) And then you know, just being in choir, school choirs, church choirs throughout, and. While I didn't have necessarily like formal training, meaning that I had private teachers, it was always part of like either like a a class that I was taking, like at a community college, because when I was in middle school and high school, like during the time when I was doing home study, I would also take adult music classes in the evening at local community colleges. So that's kind of like where I got my my training for music prior to entering into the conservatory at Cornish. So Cornish gave me that first entry into like conservatory training. Like you have your your voice teacher, and you have you taking music theory, you taking all that. So for me, at that time, I, I graduated. I still graduated early from high school. I believe I was sixteen. So I'm the youngest in my program, and I'm in a new city. You know, living on my own for the most part, because I think at that time I, I took like a. A gap year. And then um, I I entered when I was like 17, getting ready to go on 18. And so this was like a whole new experience for me. So I was just kind of like taking it in. I didn't have a plan necessarily of like, okay, I'm going to do this program. Then I'm going to go do the competitions, vocal competitions, and I'm gonna go study, get my master's. And then now I'm like a professional opera singer. I didn't really have, you know, like, cause that's like that's like the typical path, right? Right. Um, but I, di- I didn't have that at that time at being 17, 18 years old, I didn't know what a, the route to a classical singer or what a classical singer looked like necessarily, and especially for a black singer, right? and a black opera singer there are, there are actual examples but i it was it wasn't always clear at like how they got there right so for me at the time i was just kind of like taking it in enjoying the process and kind of figuring it out as i went because i knew that this was a natural talent for me a very and i was i've always been told that it was like naturally gifted i just had the the facility to sing opera and it just felt so good and it felt like home when i would perform that but in my experience, like I saw like my mother who was an artist, but also worked in entertainment industry. And so I had an example of someone in my household that did both things. Like you didn't have to kind of choose one or the other. So for me, like I I knew that the, those were kind of like the possibilities. I knew I wanted to be a creative person, but I love the idea of maybe having my own business, maybe a production company because- Even within the conservatory, I had other ideas. Even when it came to my performance style for recitals, even though it was a modern school, it was very like, no, you're gonna stand in the crook of this piano and you're gonna sing (laughs) your piece, you know? And it wasn't, but I had ideas like, hey, what about lighting? And like, what about like other things (laughs) that would go along with, for me, how I would like to be entertained, you know, to see a performance. I was kind of met with like those kind of challenges. and I knew that there was more that I wanted to do than just to stand in the crook of that piano and sing these pieces. So to answer your question, I didn't initially have that plan of like going into business and I didn't even know what that looked like. As far as like the music industry at the time, I just knew like, oh, you're a record label executive. You own a record label. I didn't know that there were other jobs or I wasn't as aware that there were other jobs within the music industry like marketing and promo and like all that other stuff. So I took an internship while I was in college and I was at BMG Music Publishing and it wasn't anything glamorous. It was like in the pr- music production, like library department for this company called First Comm Music. But I loved it. Like I sucked it up. Like, cause I just wanted to learn, like, absorb all of this information about publishing because I was like, oh wow, this I knew it existed, but I didn't really like know the, all the intricacies of what it what went into music publishing and like the copyright law and intellectual property and all of that. So that fascinated me. I wrote a whole paper in
0: college about the music publishing world and everything that had to do with copyright laws, and I was just so fascinated by that whole world. You have to dig for it yeah. to really understand and take those classes to learn about all that. I still have the book that I have for my first like music business class.
1: Like, I love that oh, book. Nice. <laughs> it's, it's so
0: interesting to me. Um, yeah, really? yeah.
1: And and the concept, like what really like intrigued me was just like the concept of you can have an idea, right? Something you just you just thought of and now that idea can be executed in a way that it now supports it's profitable and supports like a whole network of of people and an industry just because someone can have an idea and that, and that idea can just be a song it, it could be anything and and just say like I said of intellectual property and who owns it and it, it was just it was just fascinating to me. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: So this is a really great transition too, because you eventually ended up at ASCAP for a number of years. Yeah. So I'd love to learn about that experience. And then also like, was your time there really a gateway into the rest of the industry for you?
1: Yeah. So from college and that experience with that internship, I ended up enjoying it so much that they ended up hiring me at BMG. So I left college. I left the conservatory to explore this opportunity. Um, And I remember discussing Mm. it with my mom and she's like, you know, college will always be there. Mm (laughs) So it's like, you know, but these like opportunities, you know, explore them, you're young and, and just see what it is. And if it's, if it's not something that you think that you enjoy, you would enjoy doing like forever or, you know, that you want to continue exploring, then just go back to school. You know, you're always a musician, no matter what, because that's that's who you are. So it was just nice to have like that support from my parents. So I ended up moving back to LA and working at BMG in copyright initially, and then moving on to getting promoted into the A&R department as a pop rock assistant. And that's when I fell in love with publishing even more and the music industry even, even more. But at the time, this was... 2007. Well, this is a period between 2006 and 2008. And that's when, you know, the housing market crashed, and a lot of music companies, they either folded or they consolidated. And BMG was a part of that process. So I'm in my now like early 20s experiencing a major corporate merger, right? As my intro into the music industry. So BMG was bought by Universal Music Publishing Group, and I saw a lot of people lose their jobs who, you know, were at that company for a number of years and then ended up working at Universal for a little bit. But at that time, I just felt like it wasn't the right space for me, and I wanted to kind of regroup, and I decided to go back to performing, actually. So I started auditioning, doing, like, local vocal competitions and found a private vocal coach and started performing that way. But I still had that bug, right? I still had that because I felt like I didn't get to really dig into exploring what the music industry was about and what it meant for me. So I still came in touch with a lot of the people that I built relationships with while I was at BMG. And one person in particular, I told to say, hey, you know, my last like, professional like opera gig was in Louisiana and I said I was coming back to LA but I wanted to, to see if there were any like and I was looking to start at like, the bottom you know assistant position anywhere and I was told that there was an, an assistant position at ASCAP that was available in the Rhythm and Soul department I was like hey put my name in here's my resume <laughs> you know and and that's how often you know getting these jobs work you know because I did apply I went online and I I sent my I, I submitted my resume to all like all the different like music companies and not one company (laughs) called me Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And no. And and I'm like, but I have experience. I I have the qualifications, but no one called me back, not for an interview, nothing. And most of the time, not even to say that, you know, you're not even considered. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I know it's it's a crazy system. Yeah. So,
1: you know, and I got this interview because of someone I knew. And I'm sure you know, like that's really mostly how this works, right? It's this word of mouth, it's who you know, and more importantly, who knows you. So I was able to get that interview and it it was a wow, I think it was like a three-month-long process, interview process. And I ended up getting that job, and I said, okay. This is my opportunity. I'm just going to dig in. I'm going to, you know, really dig in to see what this is all about, what this means for me, because I do love working with other artists. I love working with songwriters. I love working with other musicians and I love the, I, I love the publishing world. So, as an assistant, is definitely where I honed on my skills as far as really like this is a people business. So, connecting with people to the point where they they want to do business with you and educating myself on music licensing on performance rights organizations and and what they're all about and i guess like for those who don't know like what ASCAP is it's a performance rights organization that supports and represents songwriters music publishers and basically any music that you hear on like the radio or that's streamed or a live performance there are royalties that are generated for it and I worked on the creative side. And so ASCAP and BMI and CSAC and now like the newer PRO GMR, their jobs are to collect those royalties and distribute them to rights holders. But I worked on the creative side. So I was responsible for maintaining and supporting like the current like artist roster and creating educational like programming for ASCAP members and, you know, just really engaging with them. And it was I was there for almost seven years, almost eight. Yeah, seven and a half, almost eight years. And I rose up in the ranks at ASCAP from assistant to director where I was running the LA office for for ASCAP. And it was such a great team of people to work with. So many people, so many amazing artists and songwriters that I, I had a chance to work with and collaborate with. And definitely like my weight in gold is the the priceless like network that I was able to and contacts that I was able to build while working there because you literally have access to everyone. It's a really cool organization. Yeah, no, it's it's really it's really great. And and all the other like PROs, they like I said, they do similar things, but I would have to say, because my experiences with ASCAP is that ASCAP is really pushing building community amongst music creators and the music business. And, and that is with like educational programming, like really educating creatives on what, on music publishing, on licensing, on, you know, how to get your music into film and TV and, and what that means like for your royalties and connecting. Which is so important. It's so important. I think like now, especially now, you, artists can no longer stay unaware, unknowledgeable about the music industry business. Like you have to wear so many hats. Even if you do have a team, you have to educate yourself on what your team should be doing, you know, making sure that they're doing, you know, the things to help elevate your business.
0: And I would really love for music schools and conservatories who have performance programs to require their students to take some sort of basic music business class so that they have like a well-rounded understanding of what it takes to market yourself and learn about the royalties and the licensing and just everything that goes with that because they don't know. And I witnessed that a lot when I was in college. I was like helping my friends with their resumes and (laughs) little things like that. So I hope that that changes.
1: I totally agree with you because I think at the time when and I feel like it's making me sound old, but I feel like I'm not that old. And it wasn't that long ago, but when I cuz I got into this conservatory like 17 years old and it was like the first iPod like just came out, right? And so the at the time at the conservatory that I went to it was the program was more focused on build like your repertoire and like technique right preparing you for that there weren't any like artist marketing classes you know there weren't any like music business classes i think now because everyone has access to that knowledge and for the most part you're an entrepreneur like as an artist I think those college programs do implement that, especially like at Berkeley College. I mean, like, that's like, you know, kind of what they do. And then also you have like really taught like music business programs, like the Bandier program in New York. But yeah, it just didn't exist at really at the time when I was going to the conservatory. So I'm with you. Like, I definitely like that was one of the things that that I, I advocate for whenever I engage with artists and when I'm getting to know them and their teams, I like, hey, like, If you let me give you like the resources, if you don't already have them, because a lot of artists that are starting out they there, if they do have management, it's usually like a family member or like their best friend or you know what I mean? So they're all kind of like learning together. So it's like, hey, well, let me help point you in the right direction or here are like some resources you should look into um, that you should be knowledgeable about. Maybe you don't need them now, but you will certainly need them in the future. I'm with you. Like you definitely. We all kind of need to be educated and it changes all the time. So just staying on top of it. Definitely. So after
0: ASCAP, you transitioned to where you are now, which is at Fender. So what drew you to Fender? And I read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you helped build up the Black music and culture division and artist marketing. So I'd love to hear what that was like for you. And if you learned anything about yourself while in that process.
1: Yeah, so seven and a half years at ASCAP. Great. Love them. Love the people that I worked with. But at the time, I felt like it was time to challenge myself to learn something new. And so when Fender reached out, there was someone who was a uh, who actually I think had the position before me. He informed me that he was leaving, and they had just kind of imp- created this role at Fender maybe about three three years ago, three or four years ago. As far as like, well, no, he was the artist marketing manager, but he really focused on working with artists who did R and B, hip hop, gospel, like reggae, like all of that. So like the more like urban music genres. And really like kind of built like those relationships, those core relationships at Fender. That person informed me that they were looking to actually find a person to specifically build that urban roster. So I'm like, oh, that's great. Like I have great artist relationships. A lot of them will probably cross over because a lot of them are multi-instrumentalists in addition to, you know, playing the guitar or bass. And I was informed that at Fender, there there really wasn't a foundation set for this this kind of support. Because I think it was like four or five years ago. Because before that, Fender was just like a manufacturing company, right? It's this iconic American brand. And so, about four or five years ago, they brought in this whole new like marketing team. Like you have a new CEO, a new CMO, and it was really focused on kind of growing the the core products growing the core audience. And so you have like this new team. And from the top on down, the focus has always been on making sure that Fender is diverse, right? So I think a few years back, they did a study, a market, a research study, and they found that I think it was like 50% 50 of new guitar owners were bought by women. So that really kind of changed the way Fender Started marketing its products, right? Making sure that we're kind of moving away from that stereotype of like the the male like guitar with the long the the guy with the long hair and like shredding guitar, you know. And and well, that's great because that's part of like Fender's rich history. But it's like that's not representative of what the world looks like today, (laughs) you know. Yep. And Fender wants to make sure that you know, you're staying, you're evolving with your audience and the music, you know, that we're listening to. So it's always been a focus from the top one down. And so creating this new role for like artists and urban artists marketing manager was yeah. definitely like part of the plan. So when the, the foundation didn't exist, I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is a place where this is totally separate from the music industry that I know, right? This is, now we are talking about a manufacturing company and musical products, right? Music instruments, industry. And I'm like, okay, this is a whole new space where I can learn. I know that there are going to be challenges. I am not only, you know, the only like black person on my team, but I am definitely the only woman on my team. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting, um, but there's a need here. You know, so this is opportunity for me to build something. And and that's what I've always been about. Like I said, as far as like being an advocate for artists and musicians and just creatives in general, is the more I know, I want to give that knowledge away. Like I want to spread the knowledge. I want to inform creatives so that they're able to make the best decisions for their career and for their music. And to build this support system just sounds like a new thing for me and I wanted to be uncomfortable. I wanted to make myself completely because I was definitely comfortable at ASCAP. Like if I wanted to be there for the next like 10 years, I pro- I probably could do that, but I want it to grow. I want it to kind of shift and change things up. And it has definitely been that <laughs> <So> <laughs> I started I started at the end of 2018. It's been great though because the team that I'm on, the artist marketing team, they are so welcoming and and yes, while I am the only woman for now <laughs> on this team, that's definitely changing. Um, but they have I've always I have felt included. I've never felt like I was excluded from anything. It didn't necessarily feel like a boys' club, even though they are all men. And it's not just on that team; like they're the company itself, with especially in the Hollywood office. As far as like gender parity, it's very diverse. But what we are actively working on, especially now, is making sure that culturally it is a diverse company internally. The challenge for building like this urban department is like getting the understanding. And it's still a process. It's not done. Right. Like I've been there a year and a half and it took a year and a half for me to understand the organization, to understand the industry, to understand the brand, because I know the market. That's what happens when you enter music products. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. exactly. And because I know the market very well, like I know the artists that we need to connect with, but understanding like what are the brand, what's the brand's focus, main focus and priority, you know, understanding those things, because that's not how I was working before, as far as like the music industry is concerned, working at A and, and publishing, yeah. my focus was more like what the artist needs, right? And, and that still is the case, yeah. but at the same time, it's like Fender is a brand, we make instruments. So that it has to be like the first priority. And it's like, well, h- how does that make sense? What is the story we're telling in regard to the artists that use them? And the artists use them in all different ways. In all, in many different genres. So it's like, how do we make sure that we're representing everyone at every stage of their career? And it's been great, though. But, it, but it's like, it's getting like the buy-in from like all the stakeholders within the organization because the the need is there and the support is there. It's just, what is that going to look like? And that's what we're building now. So it's been great. It's been great. We've done like some really really cool things so far that I'm really really excited about. I mean, that moment with her at the Grammys 2019. Yep. That clear, see-through guitar. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I had only been at Fender for maybe three months at the time. And not really understanding the manufacturing process. <laughs> <laughs> and what it really takes like to make a guitar like that. Like, usually six months. And I get a call from her as manager. And this is the last day at Nam. And I just so happened to be standing right next to our executive vice president of operations. And I get a text and he also runs like our our custom shop. And I get a text or it was actually a text from management saying, hey, can we make a clear guitar? Because she sent me like a little Google screenshot of a, of a, an acrylic guitar. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure we can make that. When do you need it? Oh, we need it for the Grammys in like two weeks. Uh, yeah, let me see. Let me see what we can do. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And the EVP of operations looked at me like I was crazy. (laughs) You pulled it off. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, hats off to our custom shop and Scott Buell, who is the master builder on that. I mean, he did his thing and she's definitely happy. And it's definitely like been an iconic moment for for Fender, for us and, and obviously for her. But that just showed me. I'm like, okay, this is why I'm here for moments like this. And to get artists to, that are maybe just starting or emerging to have moments like this, you know? So that was like, okay, let's get to work.
0: I love that story. So your career is just, it's so well-rounded that you have so many different facets that you've worked in, but you also serve on the board for the Recording Academy. Did you have a specific motivation as to why you wanted to be a part of the board and do you have any specific goals that you want to accomplish during your time?
1: Yeah. So as of now, I'm a I'm a former advisor to the Recording Academy. I just okay. uh, my service ended in what month are we in? July. <laughs> <laughs> it's Like, oh my gosh,
0: it's such a strange time we're in. I know my friend just told me she was like she saw someone say it's like March day, like a thousand two or
1: something. <laughs> July. Oh my God. Yeah, I believe my service ended, it was either end of April or beginning of May. But it was it was great. And but I'm still on several committees at the Recording Academy. But I initially wanted to serve because I truly believe in the advocacy work that the Academy does. And you know it's it's not a perfect system, but it's definitely a learning growing Academy to keep evolving, you know, just similar to like the work that, you know, we're doing at Fender is you got to keep evolving um, to make sure that you're representing what the real world looks like. And I think that is ultimately the Academy's goals. And I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part, like I wanted to be an agent of change and and to work with other like-minded people and making sure that, you know, creatives are of all, of all kinds are being represented and their voices are being heard. Because especially when I was working at ASCAP, I would often, you know, because ASCAP is a similar, a similar organization to, to the Recording Academy in that it's a member-run organization. But I would often hear, you know, from artists that there just wasn't as much transparency regarding like the voting process or you know, other than the Grammys, you know, what does the Academy do or how does it serve its members? And they have a lot of throughout the year outside of the the big award show, they have a ton of like educational programming, a lot of networking opportunities, just services that are provided to help artists, whether that's, you know, Music Cares, which is the charitable like foundation component with the recording, with Naras, with the Recording Academy. So I don't think a lot of artists know about that because it's not necessarily publicized in a big way. So you only know about the Grammys. But I, yeah, I wanted to be a part of making sure that artists are being fairly compensated for their work. And obviously my time at ASCAP, that was a huge thing for us as well. So I wanted to continue that work, even though I was in this new space working in the MI industry. I still wanted to feel connected to that because I mean it's the same thing, right? You're working with all these amazing musicians. All these things are still affected by them because they do get album credits. You know, they're engineers, they're producers, they're artists, obviously. So it's all still very connected. And I just wanted to make sure that I was kind of doing my part and just you know making sure that there those artists are being represented and and to change. That's awesome.
0: It's very inspiring to have that drive to be a part of that conversation and just really show the people that you're working with that you're there to support them and want them to have all the same rights they deserve as a musician and an artist or a producer. Yeah. What do you see and or hope for the future of the industry? What would you like to see change for the younger generation and even young professionals that are just starting out their careers?
1: Well, really, I mean, the conversation now really is just diversity and inclusion, right? And also equity. And I think the start is having those hard conversations, whether it's with yourself, with your team, with your company, whether you're a record label or music publishing company or streaming company, DSP, if you're a manufacturing company or a music products company like Fender, I think it's or just in general at, at all corporations and, and creative agencies have like those hard conversations. I think when we see ourselves, like, it, like representation matters, like when we see ourselves positioned in or marketed as a as someone that's successful or hear stories about or other success stories, right? Or their their path or journey in their careers that's something that we can identify with. And if we don't see that, if we don't see ourselves in those people, sometimes we don't know what's possible. And and that's my hope for the younger generation is that we actively show what the possibilities are so that the younger generation can continue to dream and to exceed, exceed like this generation. And I think also just to go back to what my parents instilled in me is in the simplest terms, like work at being great, you know, do not accept mediocrity, whether it be from yourself or from your team or for other people that are working to help amplify your music or your business, like keep going, like see what the best thing you can do. I study a lot of not only artists, but other people who don't work necessarily in the industry that I work in to, to kind of study in their path and their journey to success or challenges that they have faced. And there's a lot to learn there. If we want to continue a movement or to grow a movement, you know, you have to have like those conversations. You have to have those collaborative conversations, even when it comes to art, when it comes to politics, when it when it comes to everything, when it comes to culture, let's just keep talking to each other and pushing each other to be better. And having those
0: resources to educate everyone and especially the young professionals in the younger generation looking to start careers in any respective industry, not necessarily in music, but showing them that they can do this and there is a place for them and welcoming them with open arms is so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my final question, which kind of ties in everything that we've talked about, as a woman in a male-dominated industry... What have you learned from your own experiences that have shaped you to who
1: and where you are in your career today? I think I have been lucky enough to develop a network of like-minded women in this industry where we have supported each other. And and that's and this network of women have like become like family. And Within our group, we definitely, if someone's speaking on a panel or if someone's looking for a job, we definitely help each other out. Outside of that, I do have experiences where maybe I didn't get access to certain information because I wasn't in that boys club. But I think I focus so much on the work that I can do and making myself an asset to Creatives, both men and women, that most people would seek me out, or I've built such a reputation in my career so far that it's easier to have a conversation and to get work done, right? Whether you're a man or a woman, right? I think for me, I've always focused on the work that I do, even if it if it is the case that I am being treated differently because I am a woman. I work past that. Uh, to be real, I'm a black woman in this industry, so. I already have to work much harder, probably, than than most, right? So that has always been part of my work ethic. And it's gotten me into the doors that I've, in the rooms, that I have been blessed enough to get into and, and actually earned to be into those spaces. And I And I try to attribute that to the work that I have done. And I think for me, I just have to focus on the wins, right? And if I'm up against challenges and things don't work out, that's fine because that's that's how I learn. But I'm just gonna keep trying. And I guess like that's my main goal. is like I always focus on like what is the end goal that I'm trying to get. And I don't let the fact that this is a male dominant industry get in the way. Like I already know that. I knew that entering it, especially working at Fender. <laughs> I knew that coming here. <laughs> but I, I focus on like my main goal is to make sure That the artists that I work with are being represented and that we are actively telling their stories. And there's a conscious effort to make sure as much as we can do to make sure that we are being as diverse as possible. And I try not to think about it too much. When you ask this question, what a person does is like they go through their mind and think of like all the experiences that they've had, and you're like, and you quest that that you've questioned, right? Because sometimes it's not always apparent that you're either being discriminated against because you are a woman or you don't have access to certain things because you are a woman. Like sometimes those things aren't as obvious, right? I think i am just never tried to take no for an answer. Like just keep pushing towards what I believe in and how I want to represent artists and who I advocate for, especially advocating for myself because you can always stand by wins. You can always stand by facts. You can always stand by stats. And sometimes that I have to pull those like out of a hat. I have to advocate a little bit harder than most people sometimes. But if that's what I have to do to get to my end goal, then then that's just what I have to do until there are more women in decision-maker positions or positions of power where there is more diversity and representation across the board. I think that was definitely my experience at ASCAP. I worked for an amazing woman. Her name is Nicole George Middleton. She's the senior VP of membership and also runs the Rhythm and Soul Department at ASCAP. And so most of my team were made up of women. So I had that amazing experience of working for someone who was a decision maker, who actually empowered me to kind of give me almost autonomy into kind of running my space while I was there. So I take that with me wherever I go. And also, like, again, with my mother, she got into spaces where not even just being a woman, where where most Black people at the time weren't. You know, she was in the industry, you know, in the 80s. And there are far few executives or owners of production companies or, you know, so I had those examples. And like I said, my network of women, like they are all growing in this industry. They're all bosses, you know, so it's kind of creating that support system. And I definitely have that. And I encourage all women to do that because that's very, very necessary.
0: Definitely. I thank you for coming on and telling your
1: story and being a great voice in this industry. Thank you for having me. I I really appreciate this conversation. It definitely is important, especially now. And I appreciate you letting me tell a little bit of my story. Thanks for listening to this episode of Swim
0: Masters. Be sure to join the Swim Facebook group for your chance to submit questions for all upcoming guests. If you would like to learn more, please visit www.smartwomeninmusic.org. This episode was co-produced and edited by Stephanie Lamond and Natalie Morrison. See you next time.